welcome to the To Your Bible, custom designed to your Bible reading plan and weekly podcast by myself, Chris Case, pastor of Resonate Church. And I'm here with Sarah Pasquale, our executive director. Hey, everybody. And we are walking in uh, or continuing to walk through uh, First Samuel uh, and uh, the wonderful world of David, Saul and Samuel and all the drama that's going on in the midst of the book. And so um, we, we get these sort of... Uh, stories where you're going to see or you saw this week where it even repeated in some ways and and there were throwbacks to previous chapters we've read and so uh, right from the get-go we have one of those stories where yeah it's like we have this theme and almost all of what we read today or this week of like David having the chance to say to spare or to take life and so let's kind of like follow that pattern as we talk through it yeah and so um he, he has this moment where he uh, gets to he has a chance to, to kill Saul, but he instead he cuts off this corner of his cloak, which um, is a throwback. We, we saw that with Saul doing that to Samuel um, and Samuel telling him that that his kingdom is going to be ripped from him. But but I think it has a double meaning uh, for the Jewish people. The, the corner of the cloak is also representative of of. of the the corner is called the wing of the cloak, and and it's also representative of God's wing, God's protection, God's um, um, provision, and and I wonder if David's wrestling here was was with that um, because he seems like totally distraught, and he shouldn't be totally distraught with the fact he didn't kill him, like because he goes on to continue that pattern. But what makes David so like conflicted inside? And I wonder uh, if it's a little bit of him sort of going like uh, him cutting off that cloak as if he's symbolizing like God doesn't have protection of you anymore or God's you're not under God's provision anymore. And I wonder if David's wrecked with guilt being like, who, who am I to do that? Like, who am I to, 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 to decide whether or not God's made a decision finally about Saul. And which is why I think from here on out, Saul, David kind of takes a position a little bit of like, look, whenever the throne's going to be mine, it's going to be mine. And and it's up to God. And it's not yeah. up to me to just take it. And and whatever God has planned for Saul and whatever God has planned for David, I'm, I'm game for. And so, um, yeah. Yeah, I think there's this theme of righteousness that we see even in Saul saying to David, you are more righteous than I. And it may be um, Saul kind of acknowledging that he's going to still do everything he can to survive, but he knows what's going to happen. Uh, but for us, I mean... There's just, there's blessing in choosing the righteous path, even if it seems like a death sentence. And I think most people would agree, even now, if we didn't read the whole story, that David could have or he should have taken Saul's life. But David left the numbering of Saul's days to God alone and into God's hands. And so um, even though Saul was really wicked, God appointed him as king for a really specific purpose. And David continued to show Saul honor no matter what. And you guys, step back for a second and remember that this is really, really relevant for us in our current political climate. What we can learn from how David treated and interacted with Saul um, probably should cause us to reflect on how we engage with those in political office or pursuing political office around us. Yeah, certainly. And then we get a pretty abrupt uh, statement about Samuel's death, but an abrupt and quick, but fairly important, uh, I would say, because um, we've seen a trajectory of, of ever since Moses and Aaron of like the, the, the leader and the priest and, and sort of how they've walked together and, um, or at least coexist at the same time. But, but now we're going to see a, a bit of a cutoff and, and David's David and Saul in some ways are left alone as these king figures without Samuel on the scene. And so what's what's going to happen? Um, yeah, I mean, it was Samuel 
it was in reading about Samuel at the beginning of this book that we see the word of the Lord returns to Israel through Samuel. And so his death, we don't know how heavy of a role he's playing right now in the life of Saul or David, but it leaves a spiritual leadership void. Samuel is the one who appointed Saul and anointed Saul. He's the one who called David to be king. I mean, he's the one who kind of represents God to the people right now. And so for him to be gone is just a huge loss for David, who's kind of walking in obedience to almost like the prophecy and promise of Samuel, uh, trusting God to fulfill what he's promised, even though it hasn't been promised yet. So it leaves him in a vulnerable place, I think. Yep. And David um, ends up uh, offering to uh, this man named Nabal this um, sort of arrangement. Now, how commonplace this was versus like, it almost feels in a modern reading of it, it's like a little bit mafia-ish where it's like, look, like you you give us some provision, we'll provide you some protection. Uh, but that probably was actually a very common agreement at the time. Um, uh, but this Nabal rejects that. He doesn't show David any hospitality. He doesn't offer them anything. Um, he, he just yeah. is. Um, and not only that, but Nabal's described as not this great character. Um, and, and David's ticked. And so now there's this moment, all right, David, what are you going to do? Like, uh, up till now, you've you've been pretty reasonable with the use of the sword and the use of death. What are you going to do in this moment? And uh, and he he's about to go destroy Nabal and family, uh, but Abigail interjects. This woman steps in um, and offers um, herself to, to to sort of deal with Nabal, who is not great. N- Nabal's a totally questionable character. Yet Abigail saying, "No, no, 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 uh, s- spare him, this worthless fellow, uh, spare him." Uh, and and he she points out, "Look, David, in killing, um, in killing Nabal, this is going to be on your conscience. Like this, is gonna be, you don't want to be king mm-hmm. with this on your conscience." And so, um, yeah, and she acts like a Christ figure. Yeah, I think so. I mean, consider her circumstances. Uh, Abigail is married to a fool of a man. He is unkind. He is selfish, and she really could have considered David anger as God's provision for her, a sort of like he got what was coming for him or some form of karma. But instead, Abigail, who's done no wrong, bows down before David and says to him, on me alone, my Lord, be the guilt. She is an innocent bystander, but is willing to take the punishment and fury of David's wrath to protect her fool of a husband. And you guys, we see Christ doing the exact same thing for us. I know that when we read the story, we want to be the Abigail or we want to be the David, but really we're the Nabal and Christ is the Abigail who delivers us. Um, And we do see God using Abigail to kind of ground David or bring him back to who his identity Identity is, or what his identity is, in you know being the anointed one of the Lord. Um, but because Abigail put her life in harm's way for Nabal, uh, we see that she restrained David from keeping him from blood guilt and from working salvation with his own hand. I love this story, and I love that we see Abigail here being the picture of the Christ figure. Yep, uh, and. The, the the finale is that David ends up marrying Abigail and adding him to his collection of now three wives. And so uh, we don't Yeah, which to... is a little, I like, it makes me a little, I don't <laughs> feel like the story resolves as nicely as I want it to. It still makes me a little uncomfortable how this all works out, but I don't understand all the ways things yeah. work either. Yeah. And, and understanding the cultural context of uh, this now widowed woman and what, what, what yeah. this is like a positive... In ancient reading, we'd read that and be like, oh, yeah, that's great. She ends up being provided for by the king of the country. Uh, yeah, but we don't read it that way, but no. it's, it is what it is. Yeah. Uh, and so David, uh, once again, uh, he has this moment where his 
his troops come to him saying, look, we can kill Saul right now. And David's like, nope, we're not going to do it. But then it, it sort of feels funny that David sort of sneaks into his camp, wakes, wakes Saul up in the middle of the night. He's like, hey, I could have killed you, but I didn't. Are we good now? Um, and, and Saul's sort of saying, sure, we're good, I guess. Like almost finger crossed behind the back. Like, yes, like it's great that you could have killed me and you you recognize that my soldiers are terrible. But um, yeah, it's it's once again a reiteration of the previous story. It kind of feels once again, very similar to uh, the previous story where uh, David's driving home that um, he, he's going to leave Saul's fate into God's hands and not try to take it into his own. Yeah, I think it's it's really, these stories are really strategically placed. You know, David preserves Saul's life, then his spiritual leader and mentor dies, and then he's about to take justice into his own hands. He's kind of brought back to his identity, and then he has another opportunity to kill Saul and spares his life again. So he's kind of come back to himself. Until he goes to the Philistines. Yeah, until he pulls a bit of a Benedict Arnold and goes Golly. to Israel's enemies. It uh, takes such a turn here. Yeah, and um, and and the Philistine king seems a little wise at the beginning. It's like, well, we're a little skeptical here of this David guy, but he sets out David to prove himself. David completely wipes out these non-Israelite groups, and and not only that, but doesn't leave anybody behind. So there's no witnesses to the fact that he wiped out non-Israelite towns versus Israelite towns. And but he comes back to to Achish, and he's like, well, I took out these Israelites. So he's lying to Achish. It's yeah, it's so uh, this odd interjection of a pretty shady story to me. Um, which I mean, we will see David continue to have shady moments into his future but um yeah uh, a couple of cues so like the narrator who's writing this isn't really clear in opinion on what's happening here but but it does seem like david takes matter into his own hands and some of the clues we can see that is that first of all he leaves his own people when he knows god has appointed him to be king um and then we don't see or hear him saying anything of speaking of god or trusting god and that has been a trend and a pattern of david when he's walking in obedience he's talking about god and righteousness and following and obeying and that there's no real comment on david trusting god in this situation so um i don't know i think we can maybe agree that this this wasn't david's best moment and probably not um, it's not gonna be his worst. Direction. That's true. <laughs> uh, but I guess it's it definitely d- not it depends on yeah. Um, and and uh, the Philistine side of that, I'm sure at some point there's there's a rebellious future king who's about to usurp the throne, and he comes to you. So at some point it's like, well, the enemy of my enemy, the the enemy of the king of mm-hmm. Israel is is my friend, and not only that, but but could set up a future alliance of some sort. So um, it, it makes sense for for these two to sort of connect, but um, not for the right reasons, right? And then Saul does that something even worse. Saul is like <laughs> desperate. He just so badly wants to like live and survive. And he's so desperate. He goes to, um, well, he's kicked all the mediums out of the town. And then none of the priests or the prophets, none of Yahweh's people will give him any kind of direction. So he's like, well, I guess I'll find a medium. Yep. And, and he gets one. And, <laughs> uh, and then there's sort of this... Well, not only that, his disguise is terrible to begin with, uh, and, and she clearly sees that it's Saul. And then they conjure up the, basically this sort of ghost or apparition of Saul or Samuel uh, from this cauldron. And and Samuel says, "Well, not only is he grumpy uh, in the midst of this, <laughs> but he eventually tells Saul, like, look, your kingship's going to be gone.' Stuff he Saul certainly already knows. Uh, but then the added detail of that fact that he would die the very next day, um, and Saul just turns into a crying baby on the floor. And even even the media." trying to like comfort him with some food but uh he he knows it's over uh and and has come seems to be coming to terms with that sadness yeah so if we step back i think we can just see 
the real sovereign hand and plan of the Lord in this. And we can see it because David hasn't taken Saul's life into his own hands. But we see how God has removed his favor and blessing from Saul as king. And no matter what Saul tries to do, no matter how desperate he is, he will not submit to the will and purpose and plans of God. And so he's just miserable through the whole thing. And, and once again, we see like sinful broken methods yeah. still bring about God's plan. And I mean, that's an important detail considering how the cross was brought about by these Romans and these other groups of like, look, God's, God's, God's going to accomplish his will. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and even using uh, people who don't know him or even call him Lord to accomplish that. Yeah. And so New Testament. Yeah. We are uh, t- getting towards the end of Matthew here. Uh, and so Jesus is uh, going to ride into uh, Jerusalem this week. And um, But before then, we, we get a few teachings, like uh, this interaction with this rich young man, um, where um, it's interesting, Jesus's response to him was like, what commandment? Like, he asked, what commandments do I need to follow? And Jesus is like, well, six, seven, eight, nine, five. And love your neighbor. And it feels a little haphazard. There's probably some reasoning for that, some of, some of which there's a lot of ink that's spilt about. Um, but um, he's, he's in a little bit of me, I feel like this guy is, is being genuine. Like, I think he, he has worked hard. And I understand no one can keep the commandments perfectly, but I think he's genuinely lived a life where he's tried to honor his mom and dad, tried to do these sort of th- certain things. But he's saying, I, I, I've been obedient, but I still don't experience eternal life. And, and, and I think Jesus is like, well, like if, if you're, if, if you're working towards obedience and that's not working, like, like maybe your eternal life is your stuff. Like, mm, yeah. And, and so go sell all that. And, and, and maybe that's the real hindrance for you experiencing eternal life. Um, and the man goes away sad. It's interesting because I think most of the time we read that and assume he didn't do it, but he might've just gone away sad because he was conflicted. He felt guilty. He felt, who knows? And maybe he did, maybe he didn't. We, we just don't know, but it turns into a whole discussion with his disciples, which is really the, the goal of, of the teaching mm-hmm. I think here from Matthew. Um, because he, he's going to teach like, look, like with, with a lot of wealth, like, the, the kingdom of God, getting into heaven, all that is, is, is difficult. It's not, it's not totally impossible. It is very, very difficult. And you got to imagine these disciples seeing this Jewish guy who seems to be reasonably obedient, who has been at least financially blessed uh, by God, or at least they would have interpreted it that way. Like this is the epitome Jewish man. And, and Jesus just told him, like, look, it's going to be really hard for you to get into heaven. And so for them, they're like, this feels impossible. Like, how how could this possibly happen? Like, how do we get into heaven then? And Jesus responds to him, what's impossible with man is possible with God. And so, um, which which is why, like, salvation requires God's work. It's, it is impossible with man. And, yeah. and so we're, we're sort of left with that. Yeah, I, I think the emphasis here is just that the gain of losing all yep. on earth is infinitely greater in heaven than we can understand we can't we can't compare the two and so while we don't interpret this passage literally for everybody it's this call of of jesus like loving jesus above and beyond everything else so i don't know what what is it for you that you also want to have this guy wanted to have riches um and that's probably the case for a lot of us living here in america we also want money and financial security or comfort alongside our faith or for some people it's a dream of dream of a spouse or a specific relationship you know isn't right but you're going to continue in because you don't know what's coming next but the invitation for all of us is to leave that behind and follow christ and christ alone and this promise that it is worth it mm-hmm. absolutely 
And so then Jesus gets into a, a, a parable, uh, and I think it's a pretty good parable. I think it's, um, uh, I think how Jesus tells it is important. He, he he goes out of his way to point out that the wages that that the the master decides to pay the people that showed up last first. Um, and the reason why is because then all the people who were there from the start of the day would watch this have to happen. Like if he just paid the, the, the people in the order that they started working, well, the people that were there first would get paid and move on and they would never see this. And so I think it's meant to be seen. It's like, look, like the master does the thing that is going to upset the people that have been working there all day. And, and I think that the teaching ultimately there is, is like the kingdom of heaven isn't fair like it's horribly unfair, but it's horribly unfair in tor- towards the direction of generosity and benevolence. Yeah. Um, that 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 the those that were paid at the beginning of the day should see that God is not fair and absolutely love the fact that He's actually not fair. Um, that He is generous. And uh, there's, I think, two ways to interpret this. I think one is around like, well, like I was obedient my whole life. I, I followed Jesus, and then this one person over here converted like on their deathbed and they lived this hedonistic life. They didn't never lived according to like the the teachings and, and yet they're going to be in heaven with me. And that seems like unbalanced. And, um, and and I don't know, I I think that mixed with um, the phrasing around the heat of the day or the scorching heat um, uh, has some historical connection to the Jews. And, And I wonder if there's also a teaching here from Jesus of going like, look, like, the, those that were paid from the start of the day, who who agreed to be my people and and for me to be their God, are, are the Jews, and and you guys worked, but yet what's coming now, the blessing of the Gentiles, the coming of this Gentile family, they're going to be paid in the same sort of blessings that you guys had. Now mm-hmm. you guys had the burden of your history, but but the blessing will be like God's favor, God's God's. I mean, his, his kingdom will be for both. Yeah. And this may not be a hard thing for us to kind of wrap our minds around in our American culture, but you know, I was talking about this with a Muslim friend of mine and of course, you know, her goal is to follow the five pillars of Islam as, as perfectly as she possibly can so she can go to heaven. And so when I told her that there was this guy on the cross next to Jesus who didn't do a single thing to earn heaven and was still given heaven. Uh, she had a really, really hard time understanding that and wrapping her mind around it. And it seemed so unfair and so unjust. And so, um, maybe if you, if you don't quite get this, think about it in the context of other religions, specifically works-based religions. And it's a hard thing to wrap your mind around, but we do not ever want to begrudge the generosity of God. It's amazing. Yeah. yeah. Matthew doesn't tell the, the, the prodigal son story. And, and this feels like a little bit of, of the prodigal son mm-hmm. application towards yeah. those who have been obedient, who have stayed home, who have done the work and, and the, the entreatment by the master here of like, no, like we should celebrate that everyone's getting paid. And, yeah. and that's a good, good, I mean, it's a good, good news. Um, but then Jesus takes a pretty hard right turn and Matthew at least records for us that he, talks about his death one more time. Uh, and so um, I, I wonder if Matthew was sort of like thinking back going, we had no clue what he was talking about when he said that, but now we know. And so yeah. he said it and this is where he said it on the way into Jerusalem or on the way from Jericho. And yeah, it's great. Yeah. And then we get uh, some of the disciples' mom uh, kind of step in here and um, sort of stage mom in the storyline and, uh, and, and, and kind of ask, all right, 
what's what's going to happen to myself? Like, who's who who's going to Jesus? If you're coming into town and you're setting up shop and you're going to rule and you're going to reign, like, who do people get to be like really close to you? Who gets to sort of have a, a seat of honor uh, amidst that? And um, in some level, like, I don't think it's a wrong request. Like, you go where your rabbi goes. So they they think they're going to go rule as well, which Jesus actually just said they would as part of the story mm-hmm. uh, with a rich young ruler. And so, um, and, and but Jesus does tell him like, look, I got to drink this cup, but you guys will drink too. And and it's true. They, they do suffer terrible deaths. Uh, all the disciples uh, other than John, who also is tortured, he just doesn't die necessarily from martyrdom. And, and so um, they will go away, they will die, all those sort of things. But um, he seems to almost interject, look, the father, only the father really knows sort of how some of these details end up in heaven. But here's what I know, that power, position, lording over people, all that kind of stuff is not how my kingdom works. Like this is about serving, submitting, loving God, loving others. Like that's what Jesus has come to do. He's come to serve and to die for his people so that they can experience eternal life. And now go do the same, serve others, submit your lives to others, be willing to die for others. Yeah. So I think these last three stories we kind of talked about have some common themes in that, you know, Jesus ends the first two with um, first will be last and last will be first. And this one with his heart for service. And so uh, we learn again about this kingdom of God and what it is truly like. And it's not centered around wealth or power or influence. It's centered around being poor in spirit, centered around generosity, and it's centered around serving others. And so you have to choose, we all have to choose kind of every day or every moment, which kingdom values we are living out. Is it poverty of spirit, generosity, and service, or is it wealth, influence, and power? Right. And uh, speaking of sort of some of the last, at least culturally, we, we end up with these two blind men. Um, and I love how kind of Jesus asks, what do, you, what do you want? And he does this a few different times, particularly in Matthew's gospel around healings, which mm-hmm. I think is a great question. Like sometimes when we interact with people who uh, we can sometimes identify needs or at least what we think they need. And um, that, that may not be either what they need or what they want in that moment. And so uh, I love Jesus doing doing that uh, as part of this interaction. Um, yeah. and, and I wonder if these healings, because uh, we've seen this blind man healed here, we've seen the blind man healed uh, right before he chose as a 12. If it's sort of like, all right, like, I, I want you to open your eyes and see what's about to happen, like in the choosing of the 12 and the entering of Jerusalem, like these are huge moments in the midst of the storyline. So um, maybe Matthew places those here one, because they might've happened in historically uh, in those moments, but, but two um, as, as a reminder, like, yes, we need to open our eyes and see what Jesus is doing right now. Yeah. And then we get the Palm Sunday story, which I think is such a great story. And there's so much historical context I think helps draw out and scriptural Mm -hmm. context to draw out the story because we get, uh, Jesus entering Jerusalem uh, on this Sunday from the east, but <clears throat> this is Passover week. So um, Passover is a celebration of the independence of Israel from uh, Egypt, from their oppressive captors, and and so um, there's there's patriotism, there's there's all this talk of um, being set free, uh, and so um, Rome, rightfully so, actually sends their own delegation that same time. And, and Pontius comes from uh, Caesarea on the coast, and he'd come riding into town from the west. So uh, likely on the same day, while Rome is riding in on their war horses with all their soldiers, Jesus is riding in on his donkey and this ragtag collection of people yeah. that are following Jesus. And it is like 
contrasted understanding of, of, of two different kingdoms, the kingdom mm-hmm. of Jesus and the kingdom of Rome, who are going to look very different. <laughs> and, and so um, there's a lot of connection here to Zechariah. Uh, Zechariah is the one who prophesied about the Messiah coming back and he's going to ride on a donkey. Um, he's going to come in from the Mount of Olives. Um, and, and, and there's all this sort of teaching of Zechariah around Zechariah 9, Zechariah 14, that's worthwhile to go back and read to really understand kind of what probably this collection of people are doing. Um, because um, what's interesting is what they end up doing is actually very Feast of Booths, uh, sort of the last festival of the year. Uh, because um, in Zechariah 14, it actually talks about when the Messiah comes, he'll come from the Mount of Olives, he'll enter from the east. And and and. Zechariah connects that to the Feast of Booze. And, and so they get all their palm branches. They start waving them, which was totally a part of that festival. They sing Hosanna, which was totally a part of that festival. Like it was all of those things. So they're putting it together very much in their heads that this is the fulfillment of Zechariah, that Jesus is entering at this moment where we're, we're, we're going to celebrate, even though it's Passover week, we're going to celebrate like it's the Feast of Booze because that's what Zechariah talked about. And, and, and it's all played out. Not only that, but the palm branch had become like a symbol of the zealots. So this is, there's even even sort of this understanding of revolution that that probably is playing out here uh, because they expect Jesus the Messiah to come to kick out Rome this is the fulfillment of prophecy let's celebrate and and that's what's that's what's going on here it's so it's so fascinating sort of how they're connecting the dots and and how they're how they're celebrating here yeah yeah i think it's really fascinating it gives me a fuller understanding of what it looks like when we look at it within that historical context and the biblical context of yeah. zechariah and and they're singing psalm 118 and one of the things that happens in psalm 18 is you go up to the altar and so uh what does jesus do he goes straight to the temple as he the enters temple. jerusalem and uh, what does he find there well it's not good and uh when when some of the reasons why some of these things existed were reasonable like hey uh we we we, we need to have a way for you to be able to purchase off we need to have a way for you to be able to exchange foreign money. All those things are pretty reasonable. But when uh, the people that oversee that are all the people that can make money off of that too, uh, mm-hmm. became a system of corruption. And uh, and they were doing it in the place where the Gentiles were to come and worship God. So right. they were restricting them from worshiping God. Yes. Yeah. They're in the place. Uh, yeah. Jesus even calls it out uh, that uh, Matthew doesn't continue the line, but um, that, that this is a place for prayer for, for all nations. Mm-hmm. And um that that this is the court of the Gentiles that that they've set up shop, and so it's a problem. Like they're t- they're told to be a blessing to all the people, to, to all the nations, and yet they've corrupted the whole system. Yeah, and we see this. I mean, we see this pattern throughout even what we're reading in the Old Testament. How often does Israel? I mean, if they don't even have a temple or don't have priests, or you know, I mean, how often do they restrict others from coming into the knowledge of Yahweh? And here it's happening again. Yeah, they've been blessed with blessing. It's one of the first things told about them as a people uh, from Abraham. And so uh, they're they're constantly forgetting it. Yeah, so we'll go. I mean, we're going to jump into some more hard words for Israel, and it'll get even deeper next week. Uh, but the next thing Jesus does is curse the fig tree. Yeah, and, and it's a little bit complicated identifying the, the fig tree, because uh, in the Old Testament, like, there's some talk about figs, but... Um, and not the tree itself, but it's usually like the, the fruit of the fig in terms of judgment. Um, like olive trees, pomegranate trees, the, the vines of so the grapes, um, the, those were all connected to Israel. So I wonder if, if Jesus is picking up a Proverbs 27, where the only time we really hear about a fig tree is related to the, the leadership. Um, and, and I wonder if Jesus is condemnation here, because he has a whole ragtag collection of, of Jewish people who are following him, but he's encountered the, the current priesthood, the, the Sadducees who are in charge, and has just seen how corrupt 
corrupt they are when it comes to the temple. It's like, look, I am, I am condemning the, the leadership that exists mm-hmm. right here, that the people who are called to shepherd. And, and I have this whole collection of sheep without a shepherd and, and, and the shepherds have failed, which, I mean, if you read some of the prophets, that is a central theme. And, and so the shepherds have, have failed. And, um, and, and so Jesus con- condemns this bush. And, and then I, I wonder when the disciples come back through and they see it dead, I, I, I don't think they're asking the scientific question. I, I think they're asking the question of like, because Herod's, Herod's got all the power. Herod's the one who set up sort of the current priesthood uh, that's there right now, the family that's in charge of the temple. And I wonder, because where they're at in the temple, they're within eyesight of this mountain that Herod had moved to build one of his little escape houses. Um, and, and he literally moved soil to, to move a mountain. And I wonder if inside of that, they're, they're asking like, look, how, how, how is this leadership going to be overturned? Like, how can this happen? Like, who who's going to do this? Like that that, does, that seems impossible. Like that uh, to mm. to ever to ever overthrow this power. Like how quickly or anything like that. And and Jesus points to to that mountain, being like, look, like by faith and prayer, you can move mountains too. Don't think Herod's the only one that can move a mountain, and Herod's the only one with power. But by faith and prayer, you have that power to do that too. Like this world can't be changed. And um, yeah, I think it's awesome. Yeah. And again, I mean, that's a really good word for us right now. There's a lot of things in our world that need to be changed. And so let's first get on our knees and pray about it and then take action, of course, but it's got to begin with prayer. Um, and then the people are start challenging Jesus's authority. Uh, the leaders do. Um, and, uh, they're, they're sort of like, Jesus, you're acting like you have authority. You're speaking like you have authority, but who's actually given it to you? Because they would have had schools. They would have had like, um, um, uh, a passing down of, of, of authority from, from one teacher to the next. And uh, they're sort of like, well, well, who's really giving you authority? And Jesus goes, well, what do you think about John? Um, so I think Jesus always connects himself uh, in terms of John's authority to his, because John's also a priest. He seems to be prophetic. The people seem to view him as a mm-hmm. prophet. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so, uh, and, and the people seem to really like John, um, maybe because he's calling out the, the, the problems in Jerusalem. But, um, he, he, he traps these leaders basically being like, look, like, w- what do you say about John? Because if you say you don't like John, the people are going to hate you for that. But if, if you say that John came from heaven and he has authority, well, he's the one that gave me authority. So, um, which, which one is it? And, mm-hmm. um, and so he, he traps them. There's nothing they can really say to him. Yeah. Um, and again, we see that they don't actually want to know what's right and nope. follow God. They just want control. Yep. And so we got three Psalms this week, uh, Psalm 57, uh, which feels like almost two parts between David sort of worrying and expressing anxiety or uh, calling out, wondering what's going to happen, but then sort of the back end being like, nope, God, you, you're going to do this. And I trust you to do that. Uh, yeah, it's a reminder. Awesome. For us that like when we are in times that can produce anxiety or stress to dwell on the person and character of God, the more we know of who God is and how he operates, the greater peace we'll find. Yeah. And, and Psalms like that are always helpful too, because I, 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 lo- I always love the balance, but mm-hmm. I, I think it gives the permission from David's words to, to go like, look, like if, if you're stressed out, like talk to God about it. Like, don't feel like you have to just show up with God. Like, God, you're so amazing. Like, God, I, I don't understand what's going on here. And I kind of hate it right now. And, and I feel hopeless, but God, I know you're good. So I'm, I'm going to keep praising and trust that you're going to bring it about. Um, that, that both are part of our prayer language. Yeah. And then Psalm seven. 
Yeah. I mean, it's a messianic psalm, that's for sure. I read through it and I was like, what is this? How how can David pray this? Well, I mean, it's really a prayer that is like Jesus can only truly pray. He's the only one who can say, look at my righteousness. And we can say, look at Jesus's righteousness and we are cleansed. Yeah. And and a a call to repent right in the middle, Mm -hmm. right around verses 12 and 13, which actually Jonathan Edwards uses in his famous sinners in the hands of an angry God, but this call to to, to repent. And then uh, Psalm 16, uh, which, yeah, is... I just, I love it so much. I feel like every verse is a different prayer that I could pray every single day. Um, it's a promise. There are word promise, preservation, refuge, goodness in God, obedience, holiness, inheritance. There's so much. So I hope this is one of those Psalms that you just read slowly and kind of let it wash over you. Yep. Yeah. It's, it's probably one of the later Psalms that we have. Uh, so just so you know, Psalms are not collected in the order that they were written. Um, and, and in Acts, it gets connected to Jesus' resurrection a few times. Uh, but, uh, I mean, even the, even the finale, like, you make known to me the path of life. Mm. And in your presence is the fullness of joy. Like, being with you is, is my joy would be overflowing. And at your right hand are pleasures forevermore, which is certainly a connection to Jesus as well, who's seated at the right hand. And so, um, I think sometimes reminding ourselves the, the sort of uh, Christian hedonism idea. Like, yeah. Um, Piper certainly reworded um, the Westminster Confession, where it was like, "What what's the chief end of man to to glorify God and enjoy Him forever?" And Piper just changed it to glorify God by enjoying Him forever. And I think that's true. Like our deepest joy, our deepest pleasures in life can come just just ultimately from the presence of God, and and that's a good thing. It's a symbiotic thing. Like we experience joy, God experiences glory. And, and it comes back to us. And so, um, yeah, yeah. And the psalmist is just reminding us of that fact. Yeah. So next week. Uh, okay, so we are going to wrap up First Samuel this week and move into First Chronicles. And I hope you guys have learned through even how we've studied so far is that every author of it, each book has a different um, focus or emphasis that they want to display. And so um, even though we're going to be reading very similar stories to what we've already read in First Samuel, just do a little bit of your background research and figure out why First Chronicles was written and what kind of themes or ideas you should look for in First Chronicles that we didn't see in First Samuel. Um, and then in the New Testament, I think some of these parables of Jesus center more on judgment rather than the kingdom of God. So read them in terms of this um, command and call for us to be evangelists and with a burden to share the gospel. Ask God as you read to break your heart for those who don't yet know him. Yeah. Yeah. For the Old Testament. Yeah. I, I suggest watching uh, the Bible Project for First Chronicles before you dive in. Um, I, I think it's helpful not only to get a background, but just to know like that book was written. Chronicles is written way after uh, the other histories that we have. I, I don't take all the same positions as Mackie does. I think Chronicles does present David with some problems too, but um, I, I think it's I think it's worthwhile to watch. And then in the New Testament, um, yeah, think through like who Jesus is telling which stories to as he interacts in in. Jerusalem, mm, because yeah. um, even as Sarah said, like some of the stories are judgment oriented, but like he 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 went from telling stories to a large crowd to now telling stories to this leadership, and they take a very different tone at times. Um, so so as you're reading, think about who Jesus is speaking to and who he's condemning, um, and and who he's speaking judgment over uh, as he goes. Yeah. So that's it. Thanks, cool. y'all. Thank you. Thank you.